Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here with you. I'm Kyle Kalinske. This is Crystal Ball. <laughs> so weird, given an official... Nice to meet you. Do you have to do this every day for Rising when you do no, the... No, we don't introduce ourselves like My that. name is you know how we Kyle. Start the show. My name is Crystal. <laughs> we don't do that. We are very but official. we do have our little, like, every morning. Going to have an amazing show for yeah, you today. Yeah, you have the chirpy we music. Have our, we morning, have our whole thing that we go through. Morning anyway, show music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, so it's we to have to trick a... people into thinking that our politics are, like standard issue yeah and so then we hit him with some truth some 57 year old grandma watch, yeah, can watching watch it and feel like, like look at the they're nice gonna lady. tell me the truth yeah for sure because yeah. it gives the professional look they look at somebody like me and they're like look at this punk kid <laughs> actually i do wear a jacket and you a nice a shirt bit so of the same thing yeah you're not, trying to, i mean not really yeah but you're trying to tap into that same like looks professional so i should trust this person that's a, it's actually an interesting conversation we just stumbled upon i don't know why i look somewhat official you know, I mm. don't know why I dress like this because really? obviously I could do my show in like a t-shirt. Did you, have you always? Oh, I used to wear a tie. That's adorable. I used to wear a tie, but I didn't wear the, the jacket. I would just wear the button down and the tie. Like from the beginning? Yes. At the very beginning. When I, when I started doing my show full time, it was always a tie. Really? Yeah. That's adorable. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that's adorable, but I also don't know why I did it. I, yeah, you're right. I guess it was like, I want to be a little bit professional. Yeah. But the second I start talking, people are like, okay, dude, <laughs> professional, my ass cheeks. Well, it's funny, Fuck though, how those, like, <laughs> signals, those certain signals, like, tap into, you know, yeah. tap into a certain level of perception that you're not even, that's, like, subconscious. You don't even realize. We should get high and talk about this because we're going to discover new things if we're high when we talk about okay, it. Okay, we'll do that. It makes me think of things from different angles. Anyway, um, and I'll get paranoid, too, and curl <laughs> up in the fetal position and cry. Anyway, we have a great show for you guys today. <laughs> that would be good to record, too. Go um, Indeed. James Sussman slash Susman slash I don't know how to pronounce his name, but either one is good. He is uh Phew. bless you. He's <laughs> we're so professional. He's coming on the show to talk about his book a Work. Lot of pollen going on. There is a lot of pollen going on. Uh to talk about his book Work, which is it's really fascinating. It's about the history of work, why you probably hate your fucking job with a burning passion right now, mm. why maybe the hunter gatherers didn't hate the way they spent their time and they would like go get some food and then fuck and get some more food and they were a lot happier than you. Yeah, that's basically what he talks about. He tracks from all the way through prehistory, like the very earliest things that we know about the very earliest humans through the transition to, like through when they get fire, through the transition to settled agriculture, which is kind of like a key pivot point that he identifies, other scholars of course identify the same thing. He spent a lot of time himself with certain traditional hunter-gatherer societies as they've transitioned into modernity and threatened in certain ways by modernity, the way that has changed things and turned them upside down. But yeah, the core of, of the work is like, of, of his book is like, what is work? Why do we do work that we hate? How can we do things differently so that we aren't all spending so much of our time every single day in something we find miserable? Yes. So in other words, this is a guy you guys want to hear because I know that a lot of, a lot of people, unfortunately, who listen to this show hate their jobs. But that's not your fault. It's almost everybody in society yeah. when you look at the polling data on this. Yeah. So it's actually a very depressing fact. But we do have a lot going on this week that we should talk about before we jump into the interview. So... First of all, we got the news uh, a few days ago that Joe Biden is 
supporting the TRIPS waiver. Now, the TRIPS waiver, for those of you who don't know, the idea behind that is you lift the patent protections for big pharma when it comes to the COVID vaccine. So they would no longer block the sale of generic versions of the vaccine. That's the TRIPS waiver. Now, having said that, this is a little bit more complicated because that's not really what the Biden administration said. The Biden administration said they're going to support a waiver, mm-hmm. not the actual TRIPS waiver from um, it South was South Africa, Africa and, and India. India. They were the ones who came up with it originally. He's not saying we're going to support that. What they're saying is, OK, we're going to go talk to the World Trade Organization and we're going to involve ourselves in the negotiations. So in other words, what that means is, yes, they're going to try to come to some sort of a deal where more vaccines will get more arms. But, you know, my speculation was that I think maybe they're going to try to get Pfizer and Moderna and whoever to get their cut. They might want to give them a percentage of it. You had a theory as well. What was your theory? Uh, I don't know. You don't remember your theory? No. You told but, me theory earlier. That's... Well, here's here's a couple of the 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 barriers. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So first of all, I don't want to be a uh, total cynic here. I think the fact that they even said this is significant and it's a significant break from what the Trump administration did, the Bush administration did, the Clinton administration did. So even just saying, saying the words, we're going to lift the support, lifting the patent protection is a huge deal in and of itself. And that was reflected in the fact that the stocks for Pfizer and Moderna plummeted. Absolutely. Which is how you know something's real here. There's something that's real. Even if it's a little, it's real. Clearly, investors, these companies are freaking out. They're putting out these press releases that are just like. Joe Biden's a bitch. We don't even like that guy. Fuck him. (laughs) (laughs) That's basically what they're doing. That's basically what it is. My favorite is all of the healthcare execs who've come out and been like, well, we're not even going to work with you on the next vaccine. We're just like. Pfizer is making hundreds of millions of dollars off of this one vaccine. Like, give me a fucking break. $3.5 billion in three months they made off the vaccine. Yeah, so that's a revenue. That's like, I think I saw the stat, that's like making up a quarter of their revenue right now. Okay, so the I, they've made plenty of money, trust me. And taxpayers created the fucking vaccines. Taxpayers created the mRNA technology. Yes, they didn't so do it. they freaked out about. So I just want to say, to start with, I think Biden gets a lot of credit for, he had a lot of pressure from within his own administration, from Bill Gates, who's radically on the wild side of this, on the wrong side on the of wrong this. On the wrong side, yeah. Um, and the wild side, on the wrong side of this. From Pharma has hired every lobbyist that they possibly can get their hands on. They're funneling cash into people like Senator Menendez and others of their allies in Congress trying to get them to push back. Full court press to keep even this moment from happening. So I want to say that first. But this is not where the story ends. Yeah. There's a couple of things here. So first of all, because we're talking about a World Trade Organization proposal, it has to be passed unanimously. It wasn't just the U.S. that was standing in the way. It was also the EU, Canada, and Japan as well, I believe. But to be so, fair, there are puppets usually. So that's the question. Right. Are, does the Biden administration just say, like, well, we're cool with the patent protection waiver, but unfortunately... These countries are shading our way. So, oh, well, too bad. Let's come up with a compromise position. And in fact, Germany has already come out and said that they oppose what the Biden administration um, is doing. The tweet here. was deleted. Hold on. Okay. No, I want to I want to make sure that that no, that it is true. Okay. Germany's so, Angela Merkel opposes the waiver of vaccine intellectual property protections at the WTO. So look, that's number one. Is the Biden administration actually going to put pressure to bear on countries in the EU and Canada and around the world who are the, the rich world who are staying in the opposition of this. And that's number one. Number two, 
in addition to lifting the patent protection, you have to also force these companies to share their technological know-how so that manufacturers around the world can ramp up and actually know how to create these vaccines. So that's the that's the other stumbling block here, ultimately. So that I'm actually not sure about because there may be a lot of outlets that already know how to do it and they're just being held back by the threat of the lawsuit. See, there's a lot of things. It's tough to separate the reality from the non-reality because there's so many pharma talking points out there that are just mm. complete and utter bullshit, that they're just trying desperately to come up with anything to sound plausible to try to push back against this. So, for example, the Dr. Fauci thing. I don't know if you saw this. Yeah. Dr. Fauci was like, oh, my only concern is getting shots in arms as fast as possible. And I don't know, maybe this doesn't have that effect if you get, you know, get rid of the patent protections. And it may take as long as 18 months for, uh, you know, this to actually have the impact and have the effect. Everything I've read indicates that is definitely not true. So in other words, Dr. Fauci was either talking to some pharmaceutical lobbyist who presented himself as mm -hmm. some sort of expert, and that guy convinced him that that's the case. Yeah. So he's either a dupe or he's lying on behalf of pharma. So, so here's here's what I would say based on the the reading and the research and the experts that I believe who I've been So first of all, the the issue of technological know-how is real. Like it's complex to make these vaccines and you would need to share some of the information about exactly. It's not good enough just to have like here are the ingredients. You need a little bit of information about technologically how it's made. So that is that's accurate. The piece that's not accurate is Bill Gates, for example, came out and was like they wouldn't even be able to do it. And Wall Street Journal directly made the case that basically like, oh, well, these manufacturers around the world, they just couldn't figure out how to do it. Bill that's Gates said, the piece that's total bullshit. Gates said anybody who can produce these vaccines is already that's, making them. That is 100% false. Completely a lie. What's happening is there's a people who can make the vaccine, but they're afraid of lawsuits from pharma because they have patent protection. Yes. They have the intellectual property rights. And if they go to make the vaccine a generic version of it, they'll get the shit suit out of them. Right. And, and, and so... And that's not just like you and I saying the AP identified factories around the world that were prepared to make right. hundreds of millions of doses if they just had the green light, the green light and the technological know-how. OK, so that's that's just completely fabricated. Um, but so the question is, is this just the, the, the real core question? Is this the Biden administration under pressure scoring PR points or are they actually going to do what it takes to have this be meaningful. That means putting pressure on our allies to get in the right place. That means negotiating good faith of the World Trade Organization, having an actual patent protection lift that is meaningful. And that means pushing these companies to share the technological know-how so that the factories around the world can get up and running as quickly as possible. Here's the problem. He ain't jumping through any fucking hurdles. He ain't gonna jump through any fucking hurdles. He ain't gonna do any extra work on this shit. He, I, unfortunately, here's the reality. How many times have we seen similar things to this in terms of headlines? Joe Biden to crack down on private prisons. Yeah. You read the specifics. It's like only the Department of Homeland Security private prisons. There are very few of those. It applied to like literally five prisons. 60% <laughs> of the ICE prisons are private prisons. None of those are being touched. Right. What about the Buy America Executive Order? Joe Biden to sign Buy America Executive Order. You read the specifics. Totally toothless. Yeah. How many times have we seen this play out? We've seen it. But student loan debt elimination. I remember reading the headlines. Joe Biden to eliminate student loan debt. 
you read the specifics, it's like a couple billion dollars out of $1.6 trillion. Right. It's not even 1% of the student loan debt. And the sycophantic media goes out there. They don't even ask questions. They don't ask questions. They just run the positive headlines. He gets the positive pressure. And then, we move, and then we move on. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Joe Biden's great. Nothing to see here. I'm afraid a similar thing is happening here. Now, listen, I do think he's looking for a middle ground. I think yeah. he's looking for something where he could say, yes, create the vaccines, create the generic vaccines. We're going to lift the patent protections. But like I said, Big Pharma basically runs Washington. Somebody wants a fucking cut. That's what I think it is. Yeah. Now, but bottom line is, and you pointed this out, if it's got to be unanimous of the WTO, the fact that Germany already came out and said, no, we're not for it. Yeah, that's it. It's over. So he gets the positive press of Joe Biden's on the right side of this. And then. Whoever, you know, they may have had phone calls beforehand. I'm going to be the baby face. You're going to be the heel. Now let's play this game. Yeah. Right. But all of them need to agree. And I do want to say this is the final thing I'll say about this, but it's super important. To not lift the patent protections is fucking genocidal. Truly. We know this will save hundreds of thousands or millions of lives. Yep. And if you say... I'm against it. Why are you against it? Hey, it's the way the law works. The way the law works is to protect the profit margins of fucking Pfizer. I don't give a fuck. I don't even think Pfizer should exist. Nationalize that shit. What do they bring to the table? Nothing. They're just the middleman that price gouges you for, for medicine that your tax money created. Mm -hmm. yep. Why are they even, why are they in the middle to get a, what are they, a fucking mafia? And the answer is yes. yes. They're a yes. fucking mafia. And the mafia like bought the government. In the healthcare space. That's right. The mafia bought the government. It's not just the U.S. government. It's governments all around the world. And now you're seeing the way it works. But guess what? We have the benefit of clear thinking when we look at this. And the fact of the matter is every single Cretan who's not in support of lifting these patent protections, every single one of them will go down in history as a fucking monster who's okay with genocide. You have basically the cure for a pandemic that's raging across the world. And your take is... Eh, not sure I want to share that with everybody. Right. Well, fuck right off. And, and I hope history judges them harshly. And let's say let's say they're right. It's complicated to get it up and running, et cetera, et cetera. That's the reason you should have done this from day one of your administration, no number brainer. one. And number two, like, okay, well, let's get on it. Let's get moving. There are countries around the world, over 100 at last count, that have not administered their first dose of the vaccine, let alone what we see happening in India right now. So, yeah, this is an utter catastrophe. And Joe Biden knew that very clearly on the campaign trail. Adi Barkin asked him the question about, you know, will you support lifting the patent protection if the U.S. discovers the vaccine first? And he said, absolutely, it is the only humane thing to do in the world. So when you're just looking at this, from the ethics of it, it could not be more clear. Could not be more clear. The only way it starts to get cloudy is when people get bought off, when they get corrupted, when they get talk t taken in by these pharma talking points. And I just want to emphasize what a bad actor Bill Gates is in all of this, who has, as, who has appointed himself basically public health czar of the globe, the program that they have been using to distribute vaccines to the developing world called COVAX through the World Health Organization. He set that up. That was his idea. It protects pharma profits. It's basically reliant on charity is reliant on rich countries to donate. And by the way, it has been wildly ineffective. Their initial goal of what they set was two billion doses, which already was not enough. Right. And they've administered like 
40 million or something utterly pathetic. So that's failed. That's over. Total Anyone who's like Kovax, tell them to go fuck themselves because that shit has completely failed. But I mean, we should be doing everything. We should be lifting the patent protection. We should be lift, lifting the embargo as they did on the raw materials. We should be supplying doses of the vaccine. We've got AstraZeneca doses here, millions of them that we don't even have the approval for AstraZeneca. What are we doing sitting on this? Our country has plenty of doses at this point. That's not the issue. You know, I'm reminded of that very famous story. A guy named Jonas Salk came up with the polio vaccine. Mm. And when he created the polio vaccine, he was asked, hey, are you going to patent that? And his response was, would you patent the sun? Right. So right now, what we're learning is there's plenty of people, including Angela Merkel of Germany, who said, yeah, I'm going to patent the sun. Yep. Well, and... Um, ironically, Bill Gates working on a uh, potential project to shoot sand into the air to dim the sun at the same time. So I guess he would be on the patent the sun uh, side as well. Everybody check out Crystal's thing on Bill Gates, who is incredible. And it's already got like 1.5 million views or some shit. It's yeah. kind, of, kind of incredible. I, it, it definitely struck a nerve. I hope for the right reasons, although I'm sure some like crazy Bill Gates conspiracists also watched yeah. it. But maybe they'll get it on the on board with like the actual bad things but that that's he's what doing, say. not the invented one. It's like <laughs> you were very reasonable and evidence based. And like there are conspiracies that involve Bill Gates that are just fucking stupid. But then there's plenty that are accurate. And you basically hit on all the accurate ones, which is the most important thing you could do. So no billionaire I think... should have so much incredible power, and it's not just him. I mean, we're talking about Bezos, we're talking about him, Zuckerberg, Facebook ban. They, they basically buy line. governments, Crystal, and they run governments. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they yep. buy countries for shits and giggles so that they can have a direct hand and stuff. Why the... F- he's not even... He doesn't even have a degree in health shit, right? I Not that I'm aware. He's just a rich prick who's like, I want to be involved in that. Right. I don't give a fuck if you want to be involved in this, son. Go play with some computer chips, fucking freak. Yeah. Well, and and this is the thing is when you have this is the pernicious impact of having relying on billionaires to fund what should be right. public services is everyone who's involved in the space. They know their next grant is dependent on being in good graces with mm-hmm. Bill Gates. So none of them feel like they can speak up. It's a great point. Because their next project is dependent on going and begging him for money. And that's what happens when you outsource public goods, public services to a billionaire class and cede all that power to them. Okay. Abrupt transition. Yes. Caitlyn Jenner. Indeed. So Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor of California. It's not totally abrupt. She's a fellow elitist. Oh, as elitist as it gets. So So, uh, Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor of California, and she recently released her, her... First ad, I covered it on my show. I don't know if you did. You cover it on Rising? You cover it on Rising? Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, well, that is ridiculous. She mentioned zero policy positions. Just like when she launched, she had zero policy positions on her website. Um, so she goes to do an interview with Hannity. Okay. And uh, I want to show you the part of the interview that went viral. This is really something. My friends that live in California actually weren't my hanger. The guy across right over from me, he was packing up his hanger. I said, Where are you going? And he says, I'm moving to uh, Sedona, Arizona. I can't take it here anymore. I can't walk down the streets and see the homeless. I don't want to leave. Okay. Either I stay and fight or I get out of here. So in case you didn't catch that, because it's not every day that someone refers to like their hangar. She's talking about an airplane hangar. Right. The dude who has the airplane hangar next to her real salt of the earth middle class guy is moving because he doesn't want to see 
homeless people? I mean, you've really got it all in that clip. Yes. So, I mean, it's just, it, it is, in her first ad, she attacks elitists. <laughs> and then she says this here, which is the epitome of Hilarious. elitism. First of all, nobody has a friend with an airplane hanger. <laughs> That's not a thing. That's never been a thing. Okay? Uh, and so we're talking about her friend is the top fraction of the top 1%, right? And I think the framing of this is actually really important because they talk about the homeless like they're just an eyesore. Right. So if the Not point was, being. exactly, if the point was, hey, there's a lot of homeless people and we got to act on that now to put roofs, roofs over their heads. Yeah. Everybody be like, okay, that makes sense. But that's actually not the concern. The concern is not for them as human beings. The concern is not, hey, I have a universal housing program that I want to lay out here. It's just you're getting in the way of the scenery. Yeah. No, your concern is rich people shouldn't have to look at you. Right. Yeah. That's that's the concern. Hide it. Hide it. Hide it. Yeah, Criminalize I don't, I don't it. Hide it. This. Arrest them. Just don't. But don't give them health care and don't put a roof over their head and don't actually try to create some sort of program that can help them with mental health or help them with substance abuse issues or could help them with what. None of that. It's all get them out of the way. My friend needs another airplane hanger. Um, it, I mean, it truly is unreal. And that's the thing with Caitlyn Jenner is like. Her views, when she's espoused her, talked about her political views, I mean, they are so standard issue, Republican elitism. I mean, it's... Except one issue. And what's that? Transgenderism. That's it. So, in other yeah. words, when it's the issue affecting me and my community, I want all the sympathy in the world. I want to be, you to be super tolerant. I want to be, you to be open-minded as not possible. Good on. She said that, uh, tr that trans girls should be banned from sports mm. as well, from competing in sports You're as right. Well. That actually just happened yesterday, yeah, so it slipped so my mind. she's not even good on that issue. But what I'm referring to is th <laughs> that was the thing that she turned on Trump over was when Trump did the transgender military ban. Yeah, She was right. with Trump every step of the way until that shit. So in other words, eh, drone strikes that kill hundreds of thousands of oh, hundreds of thousands, excuse me. That's a little Hyperbole. bit a little bit of a stretch. That's that's the Iraq war and Afghanistan. Anyway, right. um, drone strikes that kill civilians. Hey, I'm totally fine with that. Tax cuts that only go to the top 1%. Well, she loves that, of course. That's, of course. Yeah, but you name it. All the things that he was doing, keeping Guantanamo Bay open, for example. The list goes on and on of the things Trump did that are terrible. None of that is a no-go for her. She supports all of that. The only time she drew the line was, oh, my God, transgender people in the military. You turned on me specifically. Well, so now I'm against you. Yes. And Caitlyn Jenner should be valued as a full human being exactly as homeless people. People That's right. suffering from homelessness should be treated as full human beings. And that is clearly not the political angle that she's taking. You know, she's not even for gay marriage. You didn't know that? No. She was a very famous I can't clip. say I've done like deep dives I, in Caitlyn Jenner's political views. I think she was on, it may, may have been The View. It was on, it was some talk show, but she was asked about it and she said something like, you know, I'm a very traditional woman. What? Yeah. She's so traditional that she's trans, but she's against gay equality. Well, you know, she's hired, isn't she working with some of Trump's, Brad Parscale and some that's of Trump's, right. she's worked with the Trump Trump's people. people. And that's why she went on Hannity to try to kiss and make up with the Trump people because they turned on her when she turned on him turned on over the, the trans issue. Yeah. But that's I the mean, idea. Kiss and make up with the Trump people. Try to get them on your side. Look, I'm all for outsiders who actually have like outsider politics. But this isn't an outsider, technically, who's a total elitist yeah. who has the exact same politics as, like, all of the terrible people that have been running the country. Fortunately, it doesn't seem like her campaign is really particularly going well, anywhere. I mean, she also 
committed murder or manslaughter, depending on how you want to characterize it. But she killed somebody with her car. Yeah. And then got away with it. You want to talk about elitism? Yeah. If that, I, I said this on my show. If a guy from Harlem named Jamal killed somebody with their car. How do you think that would go? Would they be running for governor and very prominent out there, immediately getting on you know, national TV? And, yeah. No, they'd be in prison. And they'd probably be serving a very, very long sentence. So apparently in this race, um, the way that it works, the ballot is going to be like... The jungle, jungle primary, right? Yeah, and there's going to be like yeah. thousands of people on the ballot. Mm. Basically, voters have like a phone book mm -hmm. that they have to go through. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's a... It, it does not seem like it's a significant threat to She's Gavin Newsom. Who I'm no threat. And, and, and not just her. I'm saying like none of the candidates... Mm who the Republicans are offering have really sort of like no one has coalesced a significant base of support. There's not one choice out there is the anti-Newsom choice who get I'm not like a big fan of, but he's certainly better than Caitlyn Jenner. Um, so I think I don't think that this is going to be like an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of a scenario. It seems like it's not a real threat to his um, to his place there. She hopes that's exactly what it's going to be. She hopes it's going to be an Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger type moment. But the funny thing well, is, the people like, around her just know that she'll be able to like she has money and probably garner some money, and right. so they're going to get paid. That's like the they, Bloomberg that's thing. All Remember? They care about. Yeah, that was the Bloomberg thing. Bloomberg hopped in. Every consultant in the world was like. Pfft. Let me tell you something, Hobbit man. You're going to win this thing. Exactly. And he was like, am I really? Here, here's a million dollars. Right. That's right. Keep giving me money. Oh, look, we have a poll that has you close to the top. <laughs> Could I have another million dollars? Yeah. Well, that happened with Tom Steyer as well. Steyer. Steyer. <laughs> right. It did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, remember, we, we didn't we talk here about that uh, the people who spent the most money in politics... It was like a small yeah. group of, of billionaires right. who'd given like one in 13 of mm -hmm. all the dollars in yep. politics. And number one was Bloomberg and number two was Steyer on their embarrassing How much money did Bloomberg spend? I, I want to look this up in I real time. I think it was like maybe How $700 million, dollars, I'm going to say. My God, Bloomberg spend on his presidential campaign. I've oh, looked this up campaign. before. Yeah, on his presidential I don't know if campaign. It was that, what was it? $600 million? In the fourth quarter of 2019, Bloomberg spent $188 million on his presidential campaign, including $132 million on television ads, $8.2 million on digital ads, $3.3 million on polling, $1.5 million on rent, $757,000 on airfare. Oh, no, no, no. Overall, found it. Mike Bloomberg spent more than $1 billion on a four-month presidential campaign. God. Now, let me tell you something. This alone is the best argument I've ever seen to tax the fucking billionaires, take that money, give people health care, give people college, give people paid time off. Don't give me this bullshit about, Mike Bloomberg earned that money. Gosh golly, Papa, he sure did. He didn't earn Dickie McGee's axe. Well, and what does this do? For, and then he stiffed his workers. You spent Just like Trump did. Billion, and you can't Just spend like, a little bit more to like actually make good on the promises you made to your that's workers. That's what Trump did. Remember when Trump was in New York? There was this big yeah. article that came out. People, electricians, all regular middle class people who were working for him were like, "The fucker stiffed me. I did for one of his ballrooms at his hotel. I did yeah. this. I did that. I got a fucking invoice for this. He stiffed me." I think it was in New Mexico. The rally they did there, the Trump campaign rally that they yep. did. They had to send the bill to collections because they didn't even. <laughs> 
with the campaign they didn't even pay. I mean, Sending and they a bill had to money left over, too, that they never even spent during the campaign. They and just talk about a grifter. They did the fundraising for the Stop the Steal shit. They kept right. telling their people, this is we're going to change this election result. Give us money. We got to do all these lawsuits and stuff. And then if you read the fine print on the fundraising, it was always like, you have to give over $5,000 in order for any of the money to go towards that. Right. Spent very tiny bit of that's I right. Mean, and obviously, it was all bullshit. Like they shouldn't have been spending any money on any of it. They lost but like then every they case. Just totally lie. Yeah. To people, they did the same thing with the uh, the Georgia Senate races. Mm-hmm. They claimed to be raising money for that, and it wasn't going to that. Yep. It was going to Trump's PAC, which he of course has tons of discretion. He can spend it at Trump properties. He can hire his people. All of that. Crap. Well, that's one of the underreported scandals when he was president too. Is that he kept. Um, redirecting official U.S. government business through his hotels. Right. There was a big story about how that happened. I think it was in Scotland at one of his golf courses. He made Secret Service people stay there, and it was like an hour yeah, and a half or two that. hours out of their way. He would just say, oh, no, no, stay there, stay there, stay there. And then he cut himself the check at the end of the day. Disgusting. Yeah, absolutely disgusting. Anyway. Anyway, speaking of not disgusting, we have an amazing guest today. That was a lovely transition. <laughs> was it? <laughs> You know what doesn't suck? You know what's a good thing? (laughs) Um, James Sussman, he's an anthropologist. Sussman. He's author of Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushman. That was published back in 2017. He's been published everywhere, academic journals, magazines, New York Times, etc. The new book is called Work. It was published in September of last year. Fantastic read. Here is James Sussman. James, welcome. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. Technology is a wonderful thing, sometimes not. Yeah. <laughs> well, the book has a lot to say about that, actually. Indeed, um, yeah. Just give people a sense of who you are, the type of work and research that you've done, and how it led you to write this book. God, okay. Big question to start with. Okay, well, I'm an anthropologist, first and foremost, and I've spent most of my life working with hunter-gatherers in Namibia and Botswana, the oldest, really the oldest hunting and gathering societies anywhere. Um, And I've been documenting their, really their engagement with the expanding global capital system as they've sort of lost all their land and been sucked into this modern economy and sort of lurched through, I suppose, what the rest of us took 10,000 years to do into this modern world and I've been following up with them but in between doing that I've also been I've spent a few years a few misguided years in a corporate role which I am overjoyed to no longer be part of (laughs) Um, and look part of the reason I wrote work is because the guys I was working with the Zhongasi Bushmen or the San as they're sometimes referred to were famous really from a series of studies in the 1960s where it was revealed that actually even though they were viewed as the most poor and degraded of all the hunting and gathering people actually they made a pretty good living in a tough desert environment through hunting and gathering and they did so on the basis of 15 hours work a week Hmm. Um, or roughly that I mean we can talk about that in a little more little more detail and uh, Really, it was engaging with their engagement with the expanding labor economy, which was a big deal. And it was during apartheid that they got ripped into this thing. And it's really navigating the way that they saw the world economically and the way we see the world economically that I've been 
focusing on the question of work. So this book, in a, many senses, is uh, not just about work. It's a history of life and the world through work, but which raises very big questions and real questions about the way we live and work now. Um, and the perspective that comes from it, or the main perspective I push in it, really is that sort of double perspective you get from looking through, looking at our world, looking at our somewhat crazy world through the perspective of these hunter-gatherers, former hunter-gatherers who are trying to adapt to it, and a world which to them makes very little sense and challenges some of our really most basic beliefs about productivity, work, economics, accumulation, and so on. So in some ways, your uh, book reminds me a little bit of Chris Ryan's work. And um, I have a similar question for you that I had for him, which is, is it the totality of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle that's appealing, or is it more like the mindset of not being obsessed with work and with consumer goods and things of that nature? So in other words, it, isn't there like a middle ground between modern society and what we get right versus what hunter-gatherers get right? Or is it really just, you know, they had it right, we have it wrong, full stop? No, it's 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 there totally is a middle ground. I mean, let, let, let's be clear, even the Zhongwasi and all the other hunter-gatherers I've been working with who lost their land and had all this misery, would they want to go back to being hunters and gatherers again? No, in a sense, Pandora's box is opened. And people like that, you know, they want, you know, if I was to go there and say, okay, you can go back to your old ways and there's no paracetamol, there's no antibiotics, they'd say no, you know, they're the, the, the bottles open. But what there is, is I think a huge amount of lessons that we can take from the way they organize themselves in terms of understanding how we negotiate this new future we've got to deal with. You know, we live in a world where there's seven and a half billion people. It's going to lurch up to nine. We've got huge issues around climate change, huge issues around, you know, rampant consumption, really. And I think there's a great deal that we can take from understanding how hunter-gatherers organized and engaged with the world economically and apply it to the era we live in now. Um, and they were able to make do on having very scarce resources and living reasonably well. And they did it because of an entirely different mindset, but a mindset which I think we would do well to adapt in order to make the best use of this kind of extraordinary material prosperity that we've won ourselves um, and certainly in terms of how we adjust to you know, the big changes we're faced with now, I think there's an awful lot that we can learn um, and an awful lot that we can think about. And I think the other really important thing that they do for us is they challenge, you know, we tend to think, you know, you talk to anybody, why do we work? Why do we accumulate stuff? And um, people will say, well, it's because it's in our nature. Um, hunter-gatherers actually raise some fundamental challenges about what we often ascribe to being human nature and behaviors. Um, and from that, I think we can learn and liberate ourselves to actually start imagining totally different futures for ourselves, ones that are far more sustainable, ones that are far more equitable, and hopefully ones that bring people a greater quality of life. So let me ask you a really basic question. What is work? Did traditional hunter-gatherer societies see what they were doing in order to survive as work? And where does our sort of modern definition of work begin? Okay, well, this is the, the, that's, that's another $100 million question. 
every society on earth has a concept of work to the best of my knowledge. It's one of those things that is universal, like the idea of everybody has a concept of love or friendship or affection. Um, work is something that exists. So the Genoisi, they had a word for work, just like we do. They had a noun and a verb. For them, it was called Toasi and Toa. And they classified certain activities as work, and they classified certain activities as non-work. Um, and the activities they classified as work were mainly activities that were focused on things like, um, I suppose, securing food, preparing fires, making shelters, and so on, all the kind of basic stuff that we'd associate with staying alive, staying warm, staying comfortable, and so on. Um, so in a sense, that's a kind of almost a universal thing, is all of us regard the process of putting food and energy in our bodies, making ourselves warm, making ourselves survive and thrive. That is what work is. Um, but when you start looking cross-culturally at what kind of behaviors, what sort of things we classify as work, Ah, then you start getting into trouble because people in different places have very different ideas about what work is. So, for example, the Jumasi, you know, when I went back there after the birth of my first child and I was whining about what hard work childcare was, they thought I was ridiculous. They were like, childcare is not work. And, you know, admittedly, they deal with childcare in a far more relaxed and easy way than we do. But there are a whole bunch of things that don't fit very easily into the work category. And when you start looking at the way we use the word, and we use the word work intuitively in millions of contexts, we work at our relationships, we work at our bodies, um, we work at all sorts of different things. But when you start looking at those actual activities, what defines the work we do becomes you know, rather blurry. So on one side, we have our jobs. Um, for which we are paid, and we tend to think of that as work. Um, but also those activities that we do in the jobs are in other contexts often leisure. So, for example, you know, some people cook for pleasure. Some people view it as a horrendous chore. And, you know, in this sort of great flip side swirling thing of how we try and engage and understand with work, you've got people like the Genoisi who view hunting and gathering as work. But we view hunting, or when I say we, I mean in the sort of broadest Western sense, but it's hunting in the United States is a pretty expensive leisure activity for a lot of people. It's a pleasure. They do it to relax and unwind, same with fishing and so on. And the Genoisi view that as work. That it's So you end up with a sort of very diffused space. So what we've what we've emerged in, and you know, there's a whole long history behind this to do with agriculture, but we've developed this whole series of ideas about work as a virtue, work as something that needs to be done. Idle hands are a terrible thing. Um, and talk a little bit though of, about the roots of that and how the that shift starts when human beings start to move into settled agriculture. That's right. Okay, well, let, 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 me, let me give you the quick spiel about hunter-gatherer life. So hunters and gatherers tended to live with what we'd call now, as anthropologists, we call an immediate return economy. And that means an economy where pretty much all the work people did was focused on meeting their immediate needs. They weren't obsessed with acquiring more stuff than they needed in the short term. They weren't obsessed with scarcity. You know, this idea of scarcity, it sits anybody who does a first year economics course at a school or university will end up being told in that first 
class. They'll be like, you know, what is economics? It's the science of scarcity and how we distribute scarce resources. Why are resources scarce? Well, resources are scarce because human beings, through the tough mill of evolution and through the scarcity endured by our ancestors who lived nasty, brutish and short lives, became obsessed with accumulating more stuff because that's how we manage risk. So having food today was only a sort of spur to have food tomorrow. Um, and that's the economic the economist's idea of it. But with hunter-gatherers, actually, they thought completely differently. They tended not to view their environments as scarce. They viewed their environments as provident, as giving, as generous. They could sometimes be tough, for sure. Um, and they certainly endured occasional tough times. But on the whole, they were confident that they could meet their needs for that day, usually on the basis of a few hours of spontaneous effort, and sometimes no hours of spontaneous effort. Um, so they had this very much this immediate return economy. Pretty much all labor effort was focused on meeting their needs, what they needed for that day. Um, the advent of agriculture changed all of that. If you think farming, so where hunter-gatherers garden, they hunt and feed themselves for that day or pluck fruits from the tree or tubers from the ground and so on. Farming, on the other hand, farmers don't view their environments as provident. They view them as potentially provident. You have to work the land in order to get some kind of meaningful return from it. And at the same time, all the work you do on a farm, pretty much like all the work we all do, is the rewards for that are delayed. They come later. So, you know, if, you, if you're planting a field of wheat, you're going to plant that wheat in spring, you're going, and that's going to involve plowing and all sorts of things. Then you've got to weed it, look after it, nurture it, do all sorts of crap along the way. Um, and then eventually, maybe by autumn, you'll get a harvest in and then you've got to thresh it and process it. And eventually you'll get a loaf of bread maybe by Christmas time. So all the rewards in farming are delayed. And in a sense, people worked and felt that their land owed them something. At the same time, what they also did was they, you know, as a farmer, because you weren't just harvesting and eating as you, as you wished, um, people had to acquire surpluses. That's how you sustain yourself. So you use last year's harvest to sustain yourself for the next year. And out of that grew our basic focus on A, working for future reward, B, our kind of diligence, because, you know, when you're a farmer, you cannot, you know, if there's a job that needs to be done that day, you know, to use an example from Namibia, where I am, or not am today, but where I work, when there's a bloody elephant in your field of corn, you've got to chase that thing out of there now, otherwise you're going to lose a year's supply of food. So work needs to be done when it needs to be done. And it brought about an entirely different sort of framework and way of thinking about work. Um, and this was amplified by the fact that farming societies effectively put all their fruits in one basket, where hunter-gatherers could use, so the Zhenwasi in the desert were in the Kalahari, they made use of over 100 different plant species, um, numerous animal species which they could eat. And if the weather changed or the climate fluctuated a little bit year in, year out, one species would expand at the others. They, they had a pretty broadly hedged um, set of ways of feeding themselves. Farming societies, on the other hand, depended on one or two high-yielding crops. And if those crops screwed up, if there was a drought, a blight, an elephant, a you know, plague, a fire, a flood, then everything got wiped out. So these became societies absolutely obsessed with risk accumulations, creating security. And that's really the basis of our, our working life now, I think. That's the kind of inherited culture that's shaped modern economics and its absolute focus on scarcity. 
Um, the problem is, of course, that now we live in an era where things aren't scarce at all. Hmm. So let me play devil's advocate for a second. Um, if I was going to try to make the case for the puritanical work ethic, the ideas of work as inherently virtuous, you know, I would say it's an attempt to make sure that we're okay for the rainy day when there's a storm, when there's a drought, when there's whatever issues you want to make sure that you get ahead of that. Um, is, is your argument that by having that kind of a lifestyle, we're effectively dooming ourselves to misery? Well, I, I no, I look during the agricultural era, it was essential. I, you know, societies starved and collapsed. You look through the archaeological record of the last 10,000 years of agriculture, and you see loads of these kind of genetic bottlenecks where entire societies got wiped up by plagues and all sorts of miseries. People had to work hard and they lived pretty tough, miserable lives. So, you know, after hunting and gathering, actually life expectancies declined. And you look through the bones in the graveyards of weather, even the most productive agricultural civilizations like ancient Rome. And, you know, these are damaged, malnourished bones, which are lacking in vital vitamins and all sorts of things. And the truth is for 10,000 years of farming, actually there wasn't much of an improvement in terms of levels of productivity and populations would always rise to the top level, you know, to their absolute most that um, uh, their productivity would sustain them. So they always lived constantly on the edge of a, of a precipice. Now things have changed completely. So 200 years ago, four out of five people, and this includes children, worked in agriculture. They worked in the field pretty much everywhere. You know, this is why child labor was at the early days of the Industrial Revolution was viewed as a norm. So 80% of the work people did was to produce the food they needed to basically sustain themselves, and they spent that energy basically producing more food. Then you had really the Industrial Revolution and the second agricultural revolution where the technological developments and suddenly you had the surge in productivity as effectively we were able to transfer and translate fossil energy stored into fossil fuels into food. And you had the surge in productivity. So now in the United States, for example, 1.3% of people working in food production now produce so much food that uh, more people, you know, that's a far greater sign of food poverty now is obesity, um, that we, as much food ends up in landfill as it does every year in our bellies. Um, and all our problems, or most of our major healthcare problems, relate from consuming too much rather than too little. So there's been a complete shift. So we have this kind of, we've, it's, you know, the problem is when we built these institutions, the states, you know, the birth of the industrial state beginning, you know, from 1750 onwards, you, all these institutions, when you had the birth of modern economics, both of modern economics applied really well to the period that happened before the Industrial Revolution. But then we baked in all these institutions and ideas into our cultures. They were already baked into our religious beliefs. And we built these institutions around us. So we still organize our economies as if there is this real visceral scarcity, as if, if there's a real risk of collapse and starvation. Yet our economies are the opposite. We have, you know, our problems relate to consuming too much. Our problems <laughs> relate to overproduction. And our problems relate to us effectively exceeding a lot of the um, limits around things like energy use that we, we can do. So the problem is that, you know, this inherited system of economics that we got from agriculture, it just doesn't work anymore. It's not the right, it's like trying to, 
I know it's like trying to fix your broadband with the steam engine. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit more about that because scarcity also seems like a useful tool for people who have a lot of resources, have a lot of power because who's going to work for minimum wage in a brutal, difficult job if they don't have to, right? Who's going to do the yeah. work and be able to generate the profits for the people who are already doing well if they don't have that existential terror of, I'm not going to be able to feed my kids, they're not going to be successful in the land, I'm going to get kicked out of my house, et cetera, et cetera. So talk a little bit about that part of it. Well, this is exactly, this is, this is you know, this is a problem with how we organize the distribution of our resources um, rather than the work that needs to be done, you know. So there are tons of people on these really rough minimum wage jobs, um, and they sold the promise that you know you work hard enough, you can achieve whatever you like, you can get wherever you want to go, the American dream, and so on. But the truth is, we all know that really the people who work the hardest doing two jobs at minimum wage have no chance of actually ever establishing or producing um, enough wealth for themselves to achieve the dream of great great wealth. They're sort of stuck, they're stuck in a loop. And that's partially because our economies have shifted a great deal away from labor. There used to be this kind of one-to-one -one relationship between labor and effort and reward. Certainly in farming cultures, you the harder you worked, the better you ate as a general rule. Um, and ever since industrialization began, you know, that equation has shifted apart. And ever since the digital revolution began, it's gone completely off, completely off the wall. Um, so what you end up having is you have a system where effectively, you know, most wealth takes the form of now technology, in a sense, it's, a, you know, we live in a hugely automated, very technology intensive spaces, where most of the real grunt work is done, actually, by machines like the one in front of us, you know, which is, you know, we're talking on Skype. And in order to get these images from one to another, there are calculations happening every second, billions of calculations happening every second. That would have taken, you know, 50 years ago, 10 office fools of accountants, 10 years to do just to make this core possible. Um, so you have this sort of growth in technology, and that makes the economy much more capitalized. So our economy is based on actually having a startup capital, the tools, the mechanisms necessary in order to do that. And this is for the productive economy side. And uh, by having it that way, you end up with a system where effectively labor becomes increasingly marginal. So this is what, you know, J.K. Galbraith was talking about in the 1950s when he wrote The Affluent Society. He was saying that actual, what you know, he used the economic term, the marginal utility, the actual value of the work we do is pretty minimal compared to the worth of the machines that we organize do. And so when people are actually shoved into labor jobs, there's no real value accumulated out of that. Now, I think that's going to be really the big telling thing of the future is the extent to which automation, the extent to which artificial intelligence is going to exacerbate inequality. And we're already seeing it happening at a huge level because it quite simply means that people who have access to capital, who have capital behind them, who have money to start with, money creates money. And this is why we see, you know, we've seen pretty much everywhere, the United States, UK, Europe, but it's happening also in countries like Namibia, you're seeing things like property and asset prices soaring. And that's because of all this additional wealth and value generated by machinery. But for most of us who are stuck in this kind of basic labor economy, we're not getting any benefits or returns from that. And you're getting this really, yeah, this is the, 
I mean, corrosive inequality and absurd inequality. I mean, the kind of levels of differentials now are just so, so huge. And it's something that produces, I think, a, a great deal of tension. I think it's a reason why we're in such a sort of weird moment historically, you know, where people are losing faith in institutions like the economy and so on, because it's clear that it's not actually working. You know, there's, you know, as I say, in many ways for many, for people, it's sort of like they're sitting on the ashes of the American American dream. You know, there's yeah. no chance of no yeah. chance of getting ahead. Unless um, you bloody so you're actually reminding me of an article that I read years ago where Stephen Hawking was talking about automation. And basically he said, sort of like what you were saying here, it can either be the biggest blessing or the biggest curse, depending on how we react to it. Because if you basically, you know, divvy up the bounty created by the machines in a relatively equal way, then we'll all have nothing but leisure time and time to pursue our real interests and exactly. get fulfillment that way. Or if we keep going down this current path, like you said, everybody who has phenomenal wealth, they will reap the rewards of the machines and everybody else has nothing and then we're at each other's throats. So... How do we fix that? Like, you know, I don't want to go all viva la revolution, but it seems like impossible yeah, yeah. to address that unless there's some sort of groundswell and demand that this can't continue. Yeah, well, this, uh, I, you know, I'd like to think that there is a growing groundswell and demand. And look, historically, inequality has always resulted. There are two ways you can deal with inequality. And one is you have that sort of aspiration to work your way to the top to be as rich as the next guy. If you want to have, you know, a gold-plated toilet seat to stick your ass on, and that's where you dream of you work your way up, or you bring the system crashing down. So historically, we've had, you know, endless, you know, whether it's the 1917 revolution in Russia or, you know, the French revolution and so on. We've seen, we've seen this a hundred times. You get to a point of incredible tension and things break. Um, the other way of dealing with things is, you know, we do what I hope we are capable of doing. And that is, you know, we're at a time where we have the unique amount of capacity and imagination. We can see the problem and understand the consequences of our actions, even if half of our population tends to deny the, the science behind it. But we can, we, we can see and understand what we do. And so that puts us in an incredibly privileged position to say, look, we can experiment and find new ways of working around things. We can find new ways of trying to solve these problems. And as you say, you know, there is, I think, a, almost a sort of a, a utopia waiting for us. You know, this is what John Maynard Keynes predicted in 1930 when he predicted 15-hour work week by now. It was because we'd have ushered in an economic utopia where wealth creation, just wealth for wealth's sake, had fallen out the window because everybody's basic needs were met. And we as a society, certainly when I talk about Western societies, and actually I think globally, if we're a bit more equitable about it, we have the resources to one, experiment with how we organize things without producing severe costs for individuals. We've seen over this last year that, you know, a huge amount of people haven't done a great deal of work because of lockdown, but actually everything's gone fine. People have had food and when people have gone hungry, it is because our systems of distribution are crap. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, our systems of sharing, our social support mechanisms and so on. We are so wealthy at the moment as a society that we can actually afford to ensure that everybody's basic needs are met. And what we also are able to do is we're sufficiently wealthy that we can afford to experiment 
with different things. And, you know, I think this is the problem. We keep thinking that we need ready-made solutions for the world. We expect our politicians to show up, well, if we do this, if we build a great big wall, we're going to fix that. If we Brexit Britain, we're going to fix that. What I'd really love to see is a sort of willingness and an openness to experiment with new ways of organizing our economic and our working lives and like, well, likewise our political lives in order to start addressing what we know are these big problems that are looming. We cannot con keep consuming and producing as much as we do now. Um, it's not only unhealthy and misery making for lots of people who are stuck in bullshit jobs and, you know, just really sort of turning the hamster wheel of growth growing. So they're, you know, they're absolute reasons that we've got to adjust to this. And we have the resources to do it. Um, and I'm really keen to actually start seeing some big and brave experiments. And in a strange way, I, I kind of hope that this pandemic, if there's a silver lining to it, it's pushing us towards that recognition that we have the means, we have the ability to start these kinds of experiments. And we have to embrace it like, a, I suppose, an engineer or a scientist. We have to be prepared to learn from them and engage with them. And, you know, so f for me, things like universal basic income are an experiment that we absolutely have to try. I mean, it's it's idiocy that we haven't. And in fact, I kind of wish, you know, we'd started last year. Yeah, well, you know, in the US, I really feel like the fact that people got direct checks from the government a couple of times, and that it worked, and it was such a direct hit to their bank accounts. I do actually think that that was tremendously powerful in changing what's possible in American politics. Talk though a little bit about less of the structural barriers and some of the maybe psychological barriers. You know, we were moving in the direction and, and, and the assumption of Keynes and others was the wealthier the society becomes, the more leisure time people are gonna enjoy. But in fact, that's not what has happened. People work more and more and more. They're always chasing the next thing, whatever the, you know, the ads are telling them that they need that is now essential to their life, even though it's not really essential to their life. You track in your book an epidemic of people literally working themselves to death. And this isn't to meet their basic needs of food and shelter and water. It's to try to acquire either status or those consumer goods that they feel like they need in their lives. So if people had the option of leisure, would they even take it? I don't think they would, but I think people would learn about, you know, this is what's interesting is, you know, when we go, you know, in the book I spend, uh, people actually, lots of people told me, you know, I spent far too long talking about, you know, people like, I've read the first 300 pages of this book and we're still in 200,000 BC. 200, BC. <laughs> we evolved to work. I mean, that is, you know, there's this amazing story of human evolution going back millions of years, which is a story of us becoming a creature which is capable of applying our minds and bodies and needing to apply our minds and bodies to things that stimulate us, to find meaning. So you look at things like some ancient stone um, you know, Culean hand axes created 800,000 years ago by Homo erectus somewhere in southern Africa. And you, these are objects of beauty. You can see that the person who made the thing was in love with making it, that they got the joy in work, the joy in doing, which all of us do to a certain extent. We all feel, I, you know, lots of us in our jobs, we actually don't get that kind of joy that we get from work. So we sort of do our shit job and then we, I hope I'm allowed to swear, by the way. Yes, yes you um, are. Indeed. Good. We do the we do we do the shit job, and then we go home and we get pleasure from woodworking, fixing a car in the garage, 
um, doing work which gives us that kind of fulfillment, that feeds that intrinsic need that we have. And my sense is, and again, this is, I think, what Keynes was talking about, and also Oscar Wilde and various others, and Bertrand Russell, that, that when we have this kind of automated economy looking after our basic needs, it provides the space for people to do what they're good at and what they want. We do work. You know, during lockdown, people who couldn't go into work in Britain, for example, you couldn't give flour for love or money in the first months of lockdown. Um, because everybody had become a bloody home baker. Uh, you know, there was sourdough, the smell of sourdough in these silent neighborhoods was extraordinary. And it's because we do stuff. We like to do stuff. And so, you know, if we're given the space to do it, then we can do it. And I keep thinking of, you know, actually, I mean, I think back to student, I keep thinking of the number of brilliant musicians, for example, who should have been making music to contribute to the world, who ended up having a miserable time working out McDonald's all the time because they weren't looked after. But I guess, James, part of what I'm getting at, and you talk about the definition of what it means to be affluent. And again, the difference between hunter-gatherer societies who have far less materially than we have. They feel themselves to be satisfied and affluent. They're not questing over that next thing. Very different from how we are now and how we always need that next thing. We always need that next consumer good. And so even though, I mean, you have millions of Americans who have plenty of money where they could work a lot less and spend much more of their time doing those meaningful things that you're talking about, but they don't make that choice. And part of it is I think there's this ethos of that the suffering in the work is actually a good in and of itself. I think it's partly about how much our identity is wrapped up in whatever our job is. So what do you make of of that dynamic and where does that come from? Well, this is, yeah, you look, you're you're absolutely right. You know, as you know, and again, there's the sort of big historical dynamic, you know, when people, you know, the big difference between the countryside and the city is that, you know, when you're in the countryside and you meet a stranger somewhere, you'll say, where are you from or what's your family name and so on. It's to do with, and that's the way you'll learn a great deal about them when you're in a city, in urban space. And this has been really since the very first cities, you know, six, 7,000 years ago, you meet somebody in the city, you say, what do you do? Who do you work for? Because that you can suddenly infer a great deal about them. And that's because in urban life, you know, in people who lived in the countryside spent their energy or really working one way or another in something related to food production. In cities, there was no real energy production. It was all about consuming energy. And you had this extraordinary efflorescence of, you know, from the very earliest cities, you had this efflorescence of new professions, craftsmen, artists, courtesans, politicians, priests, religious leaders. It's a sudden, you know, all of whom lived off the energy that came in from the countryside. And within those early cities, and you see it going back all the way to these ancient artisan collegia in Rome, people who do similar work tend to, one, see the world in similar ways. And that's partially because, you know, it's a physiological and neurological thing. The work we do makes us. So in a way, you know, being a potter, potters don't only make pots, but making pots make potters. You know, doing doing the work actually creates and reshapes you. And you find community with people who do similar kind of work to you. You understand them. You understand their language. So when I'm with other anthropologists who've gone and lived in faraway places, there's an instant rapport because we feel that we've been through something similar together. There's a degree of understanding. And it's the same with any job, whether it's a 
butcher, baker, candlestick maker, people have that kind of community of purpose. So it produces a kind of identity. Now, the truth is, in the last century, because we've had really machines have taken over all these what were once highly focused trades. I mean, there's a handful, you know, from musicians and artists and so on who still do it. But, you know, a lot of us, certainly in the, I suppose, urbanized, urbanized world, you know, all do very similar jobs. We'll shuffle paper about, we'll pass memos and we say very clever things to one another and we sort of do profit loss margins. And that's why, you know, somebody who's, a senior manager in, you know, let's say a mining company will often transfer very straightforwardly into a healthcare company because senior management is just senior management. It's not very. And so what you've had over the last century is people really beginning to sort of align their identities almost to their workplaces. This is where we talk about corporate cultures. Um, and, you know, in cities, there is that absence of kind of rootedness that we try and grab something around us to make community. And humans are, you know, we're still caught up in our evolutionary history. And our evolutionary history tells us that we're actually well adapted to sort of make and organize and feel comfortable with having a micro community of 150 people or so around us. And, you know, so we build that community. And because we spend all our time in work, um, and we spend more time with our colleagues at work than we do on the whole with our families. That becomes, in a sense, part of our community, our identity and our being. And because all these big institutions, these economic institutions, like having a job, having a pension, and so on and so forth, have all reinforced that. We've now become this kind of culture where, you know, our job is our identity. But I, I, I think, again, this is something that's now beginning to break down fairly substantially. Um, and you see this again and again in all the figures which look at how engaged people actually are in their work, whether there's, there's that kind of sort of team loyalty that used to exist. You know, I'm proud to, if you think it's sort of the old image, I'm proud to work for Ford. Um, you know, I think people now, there's a great deal more mobility. And I think that that thing's kind of lost a little bit now. You know, one of my uh, close friends, I was talking to him recently, and he works some job in finance. To say he hates it is the understatement of the century. <laughs> so he basically goes through the motions on a daily basis and just clocks in and clocks out and then sprints to do the things that he enjoys. He's also got a kid who's very young. He's, you know, raising the kid. And um, he was comparing himself to me and I would say that what I do for a living, the thing that's my job, is something that I would do even if I wasn't getting paid for it. It's, mm. you know, I wake up in the morning and I do the thing that I want to do, and it just so happens that that's also the thing that pays the bills. So my question is, is it even possible to get society to a point where we don't have this dichotomy between work time and leisure time and everybody sort of feels like how I would describe I feel or is that something that's so utopian and so far above and beyond what you think our capabilities are? I don't think it's utopian at all. I think it's something realistic and I think it's something that we should absolutely aim for. Um, you know, cultural change is a slow process. I mean, this is it happens generationally. And, you know, I'm not expecting people like my parents or actually probably even many of the guys 
I was at school with to change their views wholeheartedly. They just don't. You know, as we get older, we get more set in our ways and stubborn about things. But I certainly think that there is already a sea change of people actually seeking more to, you know, find do the work they love rather than try and persuade themselves to learn to love the work that the only work that they can find. Um, and I think it is partially because we are in this position where we do have the wealth and resources to be able to do this. We have the means, we have the power, we have the capacity to do it. And it really is about just overcoming these blocks. And I think it's a degree of Bravery is always required. You know, people will often avoid making difficult changes, even when they know it's the right thing to do. You know, and I'm speaking as a, you know, I'm speaking as an ex-smoker. You know, the amount of excuses, you know, I know it's putting me in my bloody grave. But I also know the amount of excuses that I persuade myself just to not break a simple set of habits and norms, which I know I can break over a short amount of time. You develop blocks. And I think there's a huge amount of natural resistance to things. And we've got to play out with that and play with time. And this is why these kind of big changes tend to only happen after crisis events. So if you think about, for example, in Western Europe, it really took two world wars before you had the real political will and engagement. You know, it was out of the carnage and the ruins and the smoke that suddenly in Britain, we got our NHS and we got the welfare state. And we got this idea, the set of principles that actually we have the means to be able to look after one another better. And I hope really that this crisis is one of the things, our pandemic now is one of the things that pushes us towards that realization. And I think it's about making gentle nudges and pushing things just just over the edge. But I don't think it's unrealistic at all. And in fact, I think it's essential because, you know, we cannot keep on with this sort of insane production and consumption loop that we're in, because quite simply, you know, our climate tells us we can't do that. Um, the risks are too high. We really now at the point where our productivity at all cost mindset risks cannibalizing very wonders that, you know, 10,000 years of hard work, misery and chaos and war have won us. And this is, again, where I keep saying, look, hunter-gatherers managed to do this, we can certainly engage with that change in mindset. And we have to. I mean, you know, it, you, we may talk about it as utopian, but the alternative is, is that we're kind of screwed. Yeah. I don't disagree with any <laughs> of that. And I love your optimism, too. The one thing I would ask is, reading your book, I had this nagging thought of, you track where the values of the egalitarianism are, you know, completely turned upside down the minute that humans settle in agricultural communities. And that's where you get the roots of consumerism, where you get inequality, where you get these intense hierarchies, where people realize that they can hoard resources and get to the top of the food chain. I mean, is that just inherent to anything approaching what modern life looks like, since it tracks all the way back to when we first had settled agriculture. You know, I'm not looking for everyone to be 100% equal, but is it even possible, given where we are now, to go back to anything that looks like that spirit of egalitarianism and communitarianism that existed in hunter-gatherer um, societies? Look, I think, you know, we're human, you know, we're a diverse species as well. We're diverse individually. We have diverse norms. 
I mean, there are. It's it's sort of funny, uh, you, you know, in terms of classifying people as an anthropologist, I'm very open-minded and a relativist when I come in. So even amongst, for example, amongst the most, you know, amongst the white farmers who are, you know, took all the Bushmen's land and, you know, uh, even amongst people who I fundamentally disagreed with politically, there were people who were assholes and there were people who were not assholes, to put it simply. There were people who were kind and decent and respectful in their engagement with others and people who were just mean. And I think there are. I think we've got to accept that in life, the genetics, the mix between genetics and socialization and circumstance will throw up people who are difficult and, you know, not not wanting to play the collective game. But I think on the whole, most of us have evolved. And I think this is very much part of our being. We've evolved to be a highly cooperative species. You know, humankind's expansion across the globe and, and the, you know, our, the extraordinary impact we've had is very much a function of the fact that, you know, together we are worth so much more than the sum of our parts. Um, and, you know, we talk about competition and so on. But actually, you know, most of the time we're pretty cooperative species. And when things really are in collective interest, I think on the whole, most people are prepared to engage and do it. The difficulty is, is, you know, again, we have these kind of cultures of entitlement. And, you know, it's very difficult to take things away from people once they have them. So it's like once you give somebody a tax cut, putting on a tax rise again, it's something very difficult to do, because suddenly people feel like it's a right, you know, what was a temporary, what was a temporary, a temporary privilege. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, it's bloody hard. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know how to change change the world, but, you you know, I try to hope, hope that you make people think and engage. And, you know, look, your the recent shifts with your administrations have, you know, give some some cause for hope. Yeah, uh, tiny as they may be, yes. Bitty, Just to take a crack at the question Crystal just asked myself, I, I think you're right that those things are sort of part of human nature, but I, so is community and so is collectivism. So we're this big bundle of contradictions and it's how we manage that. And, you know, hopefully we get, we can harness both of those things and get the best result, both competition and individualism and community and collectivism and working together. Um, so let's talk about some shortcuts to a better society, because a lot of these things we're talking about are macro level, more philosophical than policy oriented. You did touch on UBI, though, which is a concrete attempt to try to address some of these things. What do you make of, for example, paid vacation time by law, maybe instead of having a five-day work week, having a four-day work week, or perhaps, as Richard Wolff puts out there, democracy in the workplace to make people feel like they're more directly in control of their lives and their production? What do you make of those things? I'm, I, you know, as I said earlier, when I was talking about experimentation, I think there's a whole long list of things that we've really got to try out. And I think all of those are ones I agree with. There's a big four-day week experiment happening now in Spain, yep. um, and I'd like to see it extend elsewhere. There have been lots of small experiments with these things, but like we've learned over the last year with flexible working, you know, a year and a half ago, people said flexible working is, you know, it's the road to ruin. Um, you know, no businesses. And now we've had this massive experiment. Suddenly, people are beginning to ask questions about other shibboleths around which we organize organize our lives in terms of work and economics. So I would love to see a four-day week and view it as an experiment. Let's see what it does. Let's 
take a let's do it broadly, let's do it big, but let's also say we're going to revisit it and understand what the outcomes are. And I suspect the outcome will be actually that we'll go to the three-day week afterwards. I think once people realize they have an extra day of doing it, but you have to resource people to do that. I think obvious other obvious things are, in a sense, this kind of disincentivization of pointless wealth accumulation. Mm. Um and I, you know, I, I, I realize in many places it doesn't make me popular, but I really like the idea of a wealth tax. Um, yep. And I just find that when I go to places like Denmark, where there really are effective limits on, you know, it's difficult to become ob- obscenely rich. I actually think it produces a sort of really healthy level of engagement. But again, I'd like to see that as an experiment. If it does suddenly close down the economy, as neoclassical economists tell us, then so be it. If it suddenly doesn't produce this kind of um, a, a higher quality of life across the board, then we can go back. So, yeah, I would like to see all those experiments done. And I'd like to see them done, yeah, as experiments. And we will learn things from that. And then we can take the next experiment onward. But we've got to start trying to fix these problems because we can't just keep sitting on our hands and doing nothing. So, yes, I would love to see UBI. And, you know, the problem with many of the UBI experiments that we're seeing, and, you know, I'm really encouraged by lots of them, is that they're all basic income experiments. None of them are universal. And I think you've got to expect to do a pilot with the universal basic income. You can't leave out the universal part. (laughs) It's got to be for everybody. Because that is what ideally begins to break down and disincentivize this kind of rabbit mill of, you know, production and this kind of inflating asset values that we're stuck with that are, you know, when I think a lot of, you know, certainly all, you know, most of my millennial friends who work obscene hours, you know, are doing it partially because they can't even dream of getting on the property ladder and anywhere within like 200 miles of London. Um, so I'd like to see something that begins to break that down. And yeah, UBI wealth tax are certainly for me the obvious place to start and four day week. Um, name of the book is Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. James Sussman, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. All right. So there's James Sussman, 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 however you say it. Um, very <laughs> nice fairness, guy. we asked him and he said he doesn't care. That's right, which is why I'm able to do my little, I do that bit all the time with Tom Steyer Steyer. It's, it's Steyer. I don't, I yeah, but I don't care. I don't care. I read Steyer, so I'm going to say Steyer, and then I'll say Steyer, and then I'll say Steyer again. It's the thing I do. Anyway, um, very lovely guy, uh, really fascinating book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I was going to bring up to him, which uh, I didn't actually bring up, I don't think, is there was that poll, we've discussed it here before, only 15% of people worldwide, this was a worldwide poll, only 15% of people feel engaged in their work. Yeah. Which means... Um, no genius and i'm not good at math but 85 percent of people yeah are like fuck this are just going through the motions yeah and honestly even of the 15 percent that feel engaged what percentage of them had the authoritarian mindset of like yes sir i'm very engaged in my work and i love it (laughs) (laughs) and what percentage are like no i I actually really like it well and there's some percent of people that are just amazing and happy like no matter matter what what, they're doing Mm -hmm. like those people are incredible and you meet a few of them in your life you're like this person is just amazing they're happy how do you do that right exactly and i think but yeah i think the people who are like us who would genuinely do some version of what they're doing even if they weren't getting paid for it like just because they like doing it i think it's vanishingly five percent would you give it five percent 
ma- max. Really? That's the vanish- top end? I think it's vanishingly small. And so, you know, it's interesting to hear him really be in support of UBI or at least trying UBI on as an experiment because part of what is undersold, uh, and Yang talked about this a little bit in his presidential campaign, but part of what's undersold about that is how it eliminates this whole mythology around scarcity, Mm. right? We have made a choice, a policy choice, an organizational choice in the U.S. and in most of the Western world that we are going to enforce a sort of scarcity on the masses to essentially force them to, you know, so that they have to work. They have to do these things that they don't otherwise want to do to keep from starving, to get from keep from getting thrown out on the street, to be able to feed their kids and have their kids not go to bed hungry at night. The minute you sort of ease that and give people choice, I do actually think that that has even more radical effects than we maybe can imagine right off. Um, very much so. You know, I bit my tongue a little bit uh, on the portion about scarcity because there were, I kept having like little rebuttals pop in my mind. Like, But then I think he was trying to say the same thing that I was thinking, just saying it in a different way. That like, yeah, in some ways there is scarcity. Like... You know, we he was talking about all, all the overproduction of food and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, in some developed countries, that's the case. But then you have people starving in the developing world. Yeah. But, but I think, think that was his point, right? He's saying overall, there's enough. It's right. a distribution so, issue. So in other words, it was the same point. He was just coming at it from a different there's perspective. There's an artificial, right, yeah. there is an artificial yes, an enforced scarcity. scarcity that doesn't need to be there, but we've now put there. But so let me ask you, would you say then that, the fact that 85% of people at the very least apparently dislike their job, hate their job. Isn't that like a crisis and arguably one of the biggest crises we face? I would say so because it's not like work is a little thing, you know, most of your adult life, most of your waking hours. Yeah. And that's what he tracks in the book is like, this is your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You may tell yourself that like your family or these other people yeah. are the, the most important thing, but that's not the way we spend our time. I mean, most <laughs> people yeah. spend their time working with their work colleagues, thinking about work, their identity. What's the first thing you ask somebody yeah. when you meet them? What do you what do? Do, you do? Mm-hmm. That tells you all kinds of things about what type of person they are, what yeah. their politics might be, how they think about the world. And so, yeah, the fact that what 85% of people spend most of their working hours doing is like a misery to them. Yeah, I would say true. that's a crisis. And there are people that literally, you know, he, he also tracks in the book how um, in Japan they have words, they have terminology and an understanding of people who literally work themselves to death or the stress of their workplace causes them to die. And we don't have that, we don't have that focus or that language here, but is there any doubt that there's like a similar thing going on here? And so that's part of why one of the things that's a paradox to me is that on the one hand, you have 85% of people saying, I fucking hate my job. Like I'm miserable. I don't want to do this. I wouldn't do it if I didn't have to, et cetera, et cetera. And yet you have, and you have some people who, you know, they genuinely, this is survival, right? Meeting mm-hmm. the basic yeah. needs. A lot of people, in fact, it's just like, I'm literally trying to maybe meet most, my, maybe most meet my basic. Well, it all depends on what you define as basic yeah, needs mm-hmm, too, true. right? But you certainly have a good number of people, especially in a wealthy society like the U.S., who don't have to stay in this job, don't have to certainly spend as many hours on it, and yet they continue to choose to. 
Um, and it's partly, you know, a culture. It's partly like the advertising that we're in the culture and you get on this treadmill of like, now I have this debt or I have this expectations from my family or I just don't know how to do this another way. It's partly that. Um, but in terms of moving to a different orientation towards work or like prioritizing having meaningful work in our lives, I almost think that psychological barrier is as big of a challenge. I'm not going to say it's a bigger challenge than it's as big of a challenge as the structural issue. And what I wonder is we see these little signs during the pandemic and post pandemic of people kind of reassessing, you know, like people saying, you know, I'm going to get an RV and I'm going to work from the road and I'm going to work a little bit less. And you know what, during this year, I've been forced to spend more. And I just want to say this is like very privileged, like right. set of mm -hmm. people who are able to have the luxury of making these choices. But you do see a little bit of a rethinking of like how I've been spending my hours and whether that actually lines up with what I want my life to be and look like and what I say that I value. So I wonder if on the margins, there is a little bit of rethinking of that going on right now. Uh, there definitely is. Um, and, you know, you said it yourself. There's another rethinking of getting cash from the government now. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, that's obviously a good thing and we support it. Whereas yeah. previously it's like, don't be crazy, bro. Don't be pie in the sky utopian. Well, and part of why is because because of the nature of the pandemic, we are able to um, short circuit the argument of like, well, they should just be working. Right, yeah. So, like, well, so they can't, dick. Right. Yeah. So since that was taken off the table and it was so clear, this isn't anyone's fault. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a global pandemic. That's how you were able to get to the point of people being like, you just got to get people cash. That's right. Yeah. But once you've done that once and people realize like, oh, oh you, you could have just been yeah. doing this. Then I didn't like, know that. What are we doing yeah. here? So, uh, but to go back to what we were just talking about. Yeah. To what extent are we proposing band-aids and are the band-aids sufficient and to what extent do we really need to like sort of rework the yeah. entire thing because so here's an example of band-aids we we brought them up to him but an example of band-aids would be paid vacation time by law let's yeah. just pull some time frame out of our ass a month a month paid vacation time by law uh four-day work week yeah ubi these are all like okay the system is what it is we have to you know we have to coordinate with the reality that we're in. So here's what we're going to do, sort of like short-term fix and see what happens. But like more long-term fix, maybe, maybe not, I don't know, I'm asking you to see what your thoughts on it yeah. are, is, uh, you know, the Richard Wolf approach of like, will people actually feel more empowered, more fulfilled, more happy if there's democracy in the workplace and you get a hands-on approach? Or if, you know more people become their own, whatever you call it, sole proprietor, where they run their own thing and make their own decisions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and is that even enough? Do we need to go beyond this idea of separating leisure time versus work time? Do we need to go to a more European mindset where you don't necessarily define yourself through the work that you do? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, what are, are the band-aids enough? And if they're not enough, then what is enough? What can get us to the point where people will really feel a lot more fulfilled and will feel like, you know, they're not just wasting their time on the hamster wheel for their entire life. I would dispute the idea. So some of those things I think are band-aids. Mm -hmm. Like which know? one? Which things? Paid leave. Paid leave, Or sure. even like... Even the four-day work week. Even the four-day yeah, work week. because you're still I keeping the say, system. Yeah, yeah, everything's in place. It's just like, we're going to torture you a little bit less. Right, that's right. right. That's like, what okay, it is. Okay, well, that's better. That's better, yeah. But mm -hmm. you're not actually really changing the orientation of anything. You're not really dealing with that mythology of scarcity mm -hmm. and the enforcement of that. I would dispute the idea that UBI is a Band-Aid. It really? depends 
on number one, like he was saying, if it's truly universal mm -hmm. and number two, the amount. Right. If it's a very small amount, then, yeah, it's probably, you know, nobody's really no one's going to feel like, OK, I'm going to be OK on this. I can live like a basic dignified existence on that. If you if you have a, a sizable amount where people actually do have the option where they feel free, if they've got a shitty job that they hate, they can actually have a meaningful choice. Then I think that starts to look less like a Band-Aid and more like something that could have mass structural results. So the reason I called that a Band-Aid is because you're not retooling and restructuring from the ground up. If you give people even a very generous UBI, mm -hmm. there's still going to be people who have bosses and who don't want to go to work, but go to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah That's why I, I call it a Band-Aid. Yeah. And I, I'm the truth of the matter is I'm not sure. Right. But so I don't know either. My, That's why I'm asking. What, my, what I'm thinking about is... If, if everyone has some basic floor, whether that's through a UBI or federal jobs guarantee, some, you know, certainly universal health care yeah, would mm -hmm. be part of that. But where there's some basic floor that's essentially guaranteed, then you are essentially eliminating that mythology of scarcity. And I do think that that is a struct like a radical structural change that would shift organically the way that we relate to each other, the way that we relate to work, the way that we feel about having choices in our life. Like we're not, I'm not just like forced to work in this job that I absolutely hate. I do have another choice that exists to me. It changes power dynamic between workers and corporations. You think about like in Bessemer, Bessemer, Alabama, where they just rejected the Amazon union. And I think in part it's because workers feel like, well, this is like the only job around and I don't want to screw it up. Well, maybe the power changes a little bit if you're like, well, if the, if the warehouse leaves, I'm not going to be totally hosed. I'm still going to be able to feed my family. It's not going to be amazing, but I'm going to be okay. Um, so that's why I would say, I think that UBI or just providing some basic level of floor under everybody. And I agree with him. It has to be universal. Otherwise, politically, it just gets torn apart as like welfare for undeserving people. Um, I do think that that can have a sort of structural fundamental shift that ultimately, and, and this is part of what he tracks in the book, is like the way these systems and dynamics are set up, they impact the cultural values they impact the level of egalitarianism so it's not that humans are inherently like selfish greedy hierarchical etc cetera, etc cetera, but because of the nature of the systems that we've erected those are the values that are emphasized and that come out of those systems so here's my disagreement with you on that i and, and you know i actually spoke about something very similar to this video i did probably fuck seven mm -hmm. eight years ago now um i you know it was titled something like Here's when I'll become a conservative. Okay. And the idea behind it is exactly what you just espoused, which is when the system makes sense and you've already established a reasonable floor, yeah. then I'm open to the conversation about competition and meritocracy, and you're going to go as far as you want to go because we already provided you with the basic yeah. floor. Yeah. But that's just to me, that's just the social democratic promise. And in other ways, it's almost you can make the argument that that's actually just taking the rough edges off of capitalism and re-verifying the structures of capitalism. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I, you're just saying, here's the floor, but now you still got to go through that rat race and that meritocracy and go possible. for it. Which, by the way, again, it's a reasonable approach, but it's just I view that it's a very conservative argument in the sense that it's really the bare minimum. Like, that's not retooling everything. It's just like, let's just take our really shitty situation now and just make it way less shitty by letting everybody know you're going to be okay and there's a reasonable floor. 
what I would say is it's entirely possible that you're right, right? I'm really like, I think that's part of why he's saying like, you have to experiment, see what, see what falls out of it, right? And see, because I'm not sure that we can predict all of the ways that our relationship to each other, to work, to, you know, power, how they would shift if everyone had a, a meaningful floor. I think the fact of having a meaningful choice where you don't feel like this job is all I got. And so I got to take whatever shit I'm given. I got to keep my mouth shut. I got to show up even though I fucking hate it or even though I'm sick or even though I should be my kids like play right now or whatever. Providing people with a meaningful choice, I think, is actually a radical thing um, and, and would change, would fundamentally change some of those structures. So, again, whether it's UBI, whether it's a meaningful choice of like, ah, fuck Walmart. I'm going, I've got a federal job guarantee. I can have a decent job with, you know, that's federal government provided where I'm building infrastructure in the country or whatever it is that you actually have some kind of option. I do think would be a profound shift in the way that our nation is structured. Our only disagreement is how to label that and how mm. radical that actually is. Because when I hear that, all I hear is Scandinavia or FDR. To me, that's that's all what we're talking about here. So I don't view that as radical. I just view it as like the bare minimum. I don't view I guess radical is maybe it depends on how you're using the word. Right. right I think yeah. it's radically different from what we have now. Well, of course. Yeah. That And so that's the way that I'm using the terminology. Do I think but that it's that's, just Scandinavia. Do I think basically. it's a radical idea? No, I don't yeah. think it's a radical idea. I think it's like I think it's the most obvious and basic thing we could do <laughs> right, yeah. just to recognize that human beings are human beings and have like dignity and worth in and of themselves. Yes, exactly. Um, so guys, that was again, James Sussman or Susman. His book is work a deep history from the stone age to the age of robots. Um, really fascinating book in some ways, like I said to him, he reminds me a little bit of Chris Ryan in the sense that, he talks a lot about hunter-gatherers. He talks and, about prehistory right, yeah. and how settled ag agriculture really shifted. Shifted everything. Everything. Sure. Roots mm -hmm. of consumerism, roots of inequality, roots of hierarchies, all sort of starts right there. So, yeah, very yeah. fascinating read. So, everybody, check out that book. Um, and, of course, subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack if you haven't yet. Can we get a Barry Weiss update? Okay. Give me a minute. All right. Let me, let me... Stall for time. Okay. <laughs> stalling, stalling, stalling. I'm singing a stalling still... song. Hold on. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Drum right. roll, please. For All the right. love of God, please tell no, me we got closer. No. We did get closer. Guys, oh, we, we got moved closer. Up. We okay. moved up. She's at 10. We're at 13. Last week, we're at oh, 14. So, right. There you go. We were at 14. We asked for your help to get in front of Barry Weiss. We moved up from 14 to 13. So, hey, props to all of you. Thanks, guys. But low-key, though, if we don't get in front of Barry Weiss... I'm committing, what's the thing the Japanese term for? Seppuku? Seppuku? Let me look that up. What What are you? That's where you like, it's a it's a suicide that's like, after you've brought shame, oh, you commit suicide. Okay. But that's, I might, that's the one I you're may have, do. I may have messed up that term and that low key may be like a dirty, oh, like God. pornographic, <laughs> like that, because it sounds like that, right? Like, you want to do seppuku? <laughs> I'm getting uncomfortable. Me too. Um, all right, hold on. Uh, uh, no, I think I got it right. Uh, seppuku is a native Japanese uh, form of Jap Yes, form of Japanese ritual suicide. Oh, suicide by disembowelment. Oh, whoa, that got super specific. And it's but it's because of the shame thing. Um, I don't. Oh yeah, the code of honor. It was originally reserved for samurai in their code of honor, but was also practiced by Japanese people during the. Show, show up period, show up period, to restore honor for themselves or their families. So if you dishonor your family in any way, the idea is like, 
I'm gonna take the take the sword and just right into my guts. Disembowel yourself. Wow. Because you've brought dishonor. So anyway, if we don't beat Barry Weiss, <laughs> we're bringing dishonor, and I will uh, disembowel myself live on Crystal Kyle. Oh God. Okay. It's well, the Kyle guarantee. Subscribe to see that, I guess. <laughs> Wait, no, you don't want to see that. It's not like if we beat her, I'll do it. I'm gonna do it if we don't beat her. But how? What should the time frame should I give before I have to disembowel myself? Like three months? Maybe? Um, Two months? Three. Let's let's three months. Three um, months. All right. I think we can pull that off. Okay. So. I might be disemboweling myself. Please, guys. I don't want to disembowel myself. <laughs> save my rectum. Let's start the Save Kyle's Rectum movement. <laughs> this is getting really Hashtag weird. Hashtag Save Kyle's Rectum. <laughs> okay. And on that right. note, let's Subscribe on show. Substack. Love you guys. Peace out. Mm.